Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and this is episode 80. We're going to be continuing our series on women in leadership, talking about women, Bible interpretation, and history, and why their stories matter, and how it reminds us that we are not alone on this journey. Let's do this! Hey everybody, thank you guys so much once again for joining us on this conversation. And as we continue our series on women in leadership, we have a really special treat today as we have Marion Taylor, who is the professor of Old Testament at Wycliffe College at the University of Toronto, joining us today as our special guest. And her research interests include reclaiming the interpretive work of women throughout history. Marion, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. As always, we have Bernard and Xenia here as well. How are you guys doing? Hello, hello. Marion, why don't you start us off with introducing yourself to us a little bit? Sure. I'm Marion Taylor, and I grew up... I'm one of the few people that you probably meet. My parents were born in Toronto, and I was born in Toronto. So I grew up in Toronto, went to the University of Toronto... And it was in my first course at the university that I I took a course on Old Testament, and I really got hooked. The questions that were raised in that course really drove me to study biblical languages, archaeology, history, and then I wanted to study theology. So I came to the Toronto School of Theology. I began at Wycliffe College. I went to Knox College, where I finished my MDiv. And then I began doctoral studies in Toronto and then went to Yale University where I completed my PhD. And in those years, I became very interested in questions of the history of the interpretation of the Bible. And I actually ended up doing my thesis on how the Old Testament was studied and taught at Princeton Theological Seminary from 1812 to 1929. And that was the period when they were really wrestling with what do we do with German higher criticism that was calling into question the authority of the Bible. So that I got hooked on the importance of recovering past history, I think, with that project, although it had nothing to do with women. There were no women professors or students at Princeton. And I was often interested in, you know, about finding women at Princeton. And the only women I could find was this, a reference in a letter written by Alexander to young theological students. And it, it was advice to young students in finding a wife. And essentially, he said, find a wife who can do everything so you can do ministry. And that was pretty well all that I found about women in the old Princetonians. So then I came to Toronto, came home to Toronto, where I got a job at Wycliffe College, began my teaching career here, and so taught courses like Intro to Old Testament, courses on Genesis, Biblical Theology, Jeremiah, courses like that, sort of traditional Old Testament courses. And I taught a course also on the history 
of criticism and how the church responded to it. And about 20 years ago, when I was teaching a course, that course, a woman in my class said, can I do a paper on a woman interpreter? And her question really has changed my life because I thought, I don't know any women interpreters of the Bible before 1970. Mm. I knew about you know, lots of feminist interpreters of the Bible and, and some more conservative ones. But I thought, there's got to be women who interpreted the Bible before 1970. I had studied none of them in my education, and I was intrigued. So that began the most exciting journey of my life in terms of trying to find forgotten women interpreters of the Bible, because we didn't, at that point, I didn't know who they were. I didn't know the name of the book they published. And so how could I find these books? So I did find that some other people had been asking this question, historians, especially English scholars, and some biblical scholars. There was a woman, an English scholar, Patricia Demers, in Edmonton, who wrote a book on women interpreters. It was a short book. When I found it, I thought, oh, she's already done this project. And then I read it and I thought, oh, there's so much more. <laughs> so that... So then we, I got some grant money and we started to look for women in the 19th century because looking for women in all of history is a long period of time. So I, I narrowed the focus of my research on the 19th century because I'd already studied the 19th century. So I kind of knew it well. And my graduate student, who was an engineer and very savvy in tech things, had the brilliant idea of looking at the British Library and searching under their now scanned holdings for books on women in the Bible. So we typed in Mrs. as author and Bible as subject. And that was the day we began to find hundreds of women in the wow. 19th century who had published books on the Bible. And I was, it was so exciting to find these women because I didn't know there were biblical scholars in the 19th century. I didn't know. And the biggest shocking find for me was to find commentaries written by women in the 19th century. In fact, two women wrote commentaries on the entire Bible. Sarah Trimmer in 1805 has a wonderful commentary on the whole Bible, and I still use it. It's been reprinted. And a lot of these books now are on Google Books, so you can access them. And another woman, Mary Cornwallis, wrote four-volume commentary on the Bible. So I thought, this is absolutely incredible. Then we found a woman who published as GB. Her name was Grisilla Boddington. And in a cottage in England, and I don't know what the cottage looked like. I think she was a woman of wealth and didn't work. But she spent her whole life writing a commentary on every book of the New Testament. I have a couple of hers, and they're beautiful, and they, they follow the same format as a male commentary with, you know, an exegesis of the text. And she also, at the end, she does an application, and then she has a prayer based on, you know, her exposition of the chapter. So we have found hundreds of books written by women, not just in the 19th century, but it 
goes back and goes forward. Books on devotion, books on children's Bibles, children's catechism, books for teenagers, books on Israel, books on Jerusalem, books on geography. And I realized the Bible was so important to everyone in the 19th century. In fact, that was the first book that people learned to read. And there was a genre that I didn't even know about called the ABCery. And that was a book, that was how you learned your alphabet. There was a Bible verse linked to every letter of the alphabet. And I found that out when we when I was studying Hagar and we collected all of women's writings on the character of Hagar. And she wrote, Well, we all know about Hagar. And I thought, how do they all know about this? And they all know the verse, thou, Lord, seest me. And that's because in the ABCery that they all learned, you know, when they were three, four, and five, the letter T was the verse from Genesis, thou, Lord, seest me. And so they knew, they loved the story of Hagar and her encounter with God in the wilderness that God sees them. And then there was the art form where they had eyes on the wall. Thou, Lord, seest me, right? So that was the striking beginning of this search for women interpreters. And we have published a book on women's interpretations of the women in Genesis. And in, that was the first book. It was called Let Her Speak for Herself, the book I wrote with Heather Weir. And we have 50 women commentators on the women in Genesis. And they're English and American primarily. We have one or two Canadians in that period, which is also very surprising. And then we wrote a book, uh, Christiana de Groot from Calvin, and I put together a collection of the stories of women writing on the women in Joshua and Judges. And they're really fun stories. So women had a lot of interesting things to say about those women. And then Heather and I, Heather Weir and I wrote a book a collection on what women had to say about the women in the Gospels. And that that was interesting experience because I think New Testament women are quite different than Old Testament characters. Like the Old Testament characters are more fleshy and, you know, down to earth. Like you can't compare somebody like Jael who puts a tent peg in a woman's head and the Virgin <laughs> Mary, right? So what they write about the Virgin Mary is much more spiritual, you know, devotional. But what they write about Jael is very different, right? Very different. So I kind of like, well, I'm an Old Testament scholar, so I, I love the Old Testament. I love the New Testament too, but it's the stories of the Old Testament that really get me hooked. And then how women throughout history have talked about those women is really interesting. And I think this is a generally true. Women want to know about the women in the Bible, right? Because they want to know, how does this affect my life, right? Am I, can I be like a Deborah and be a leader, right? Can I be like the Virgin Mary? Can I be like Elizabeth? And, and so women write, I think overall, women tend to write more on the women in the Bible than male counterparts because they really want to know what God says about women and how this can impact their lives. So that's way too much of an introduction, but that's sort of how I got from my first year at university 
to my search for women interpreters, which is ongoing. And in the middle of that, like partway through, I have I also have three children. And they've been part of this project too, because they all one of them always says, My mom is so happy when she finds yet another woman interpreter to rescue. <laughs> yes. And that's true. You know, I I, I get really excited about just finding women who've been forgotten because they deserve to be remembered, I think. And and I have sort of flesh in the game because of my own experience is that there were very few women. I was the only woman in my class of five at Yale. And it's sometimes a very lonely experience to be the only woman around a table. I was mm. the first woman at Wycliffe, faculty member. And that was a lonely experience too, right? And I didn't know that there were four mothers who had done this before me. And when I was researching early women scholars, I discovered there were lots of women, even in the 19th century, that taught the Bible at colleges in America, right? And that there were, were women professors in early 20th century at many colleges, especially Quaker colleges, because they had a more open view of women in ministry. But these were very competent women who had PhDs. And I thought it would have been very helpful for me to know about those women, because then I would have had shoulders to stand on. And I think I would have had more confidence in my own role as a woman in a field where, you know, some people think women shouldn't teach at seminaries even today. But I realized that this is not a new debate. It's been going on for a long time. And if I had known the history of the debate and how women have argued for women's position in, in leadership for hundreds of years, it would have changed my life. And so I really have a passion about getting this information out because I think, well, I know from my teaching, it does change people's lives, men and women, to know that we have four mothers of faith who are amazing women that can inspire us. I don't think a mentor has to be a living person. I think a mentor can be dead. And that sounds creepy, <laughs> but I know it's true. And, and it's been my experience, even when I was a graduate student, reading through these letters and lecture notes at Princeton, they would bring out these big brown paper bags wrapped in string. And I opened them up and nobody had looked at this material for 170 years or whatever. And I read, I read about these men and how they were engaging the text. And I realized that the questions I had were not unique. They had had the same questions. And so I found a bunch of mentors that were dead. <laughs> and that really helped me in my own questions, right? How, how do you negotiate your faith and your intellect? And how do you bring these things together? And I thought, I am not alone in this battle. And I have lots of people who've gone before me. So so that's where that's where I am today. I'm just kind of I'm so excited about all these four mothers and four fathers that have been hidden or set aside or silenced that now we're recovering because I think that it will change. Well, I know it will change 
how we write our histories. We need to rewrite history to include the voices of marginalized people. Wow. Thank you so much, Marion, for sharing that. It is so cool to hear how you caught the bug and then this journey into doing these deep dives. And I feel that you sharing these stories and bringing them to light is so important for us. These stories need to be shared, especially in considering how the Bible has been interpreted, how we understand the Bible, the different voices, and I'm grateful for, for your contribution and your work into it. I, I want to ask you because, well, about 10 years ago, you published a book called The Handbook of Women, Biblical Interpreters, A Historical and Biographical Guide, and you have written commentaries on Ruth and Esther. You know, you've been on this project of uh, interpreting Paul through the eyes of women in the, from the 16th and 19th centuries. I want to hear from you, because you mentioned a lot about how lives have been changed and, and how it's affected you personally. What has been some of the responses to your work? How have some people come up to you and, and shared what your work and understanding kind of interpretation and seeing it from different lenses has meant to them? Like, what have some of those responses been? Wow, that's a great question. Oh, there are a number of responses. I can think of one woman who was in my class, and it was a class on Old Testament ethics. And we had read a number of women as well as men. And I guess as an offhand comment, I said, well, we know that women have been interpreting the Bible as long as men. <laughs> and this woman said, what? She said, I had no idea. I'm a pastor. And I didn't know that there were pastors ahead right. of me. She had no idea that women had been pastors for centuries and preachers, right? And she thought she was alone out there in Toronto at a big church. And it changed her life that day. She said, I have others before me, and I've got to find out who they were. So that was one fun story. <laughs> Maybe a more profound story comes from my experience of teaching a course on women interpreters in May of this year. And there was a gentleman in the class from Singapore, a Methodist pastor, and he was completing a THM degree and going back to be a Methodist minister. He thought he was going to be hired as the senior pastor. He had been promised that job. And he read Amanda Bankhausen's excellent book called The Gospel of Eve, which she, in, in that book, she shows that there is a long history of interpreting Eve, not as the negative person that she's often presented as, but as, as something different. And in her book, she shows how, how the traditional interpretations of Genesis 1 to 3 has impacted every aspect of women's lives historically. Should women be educated, right? Should they have roles outside of motherhood? Should women preach? Should women teach? And so she collects historical writings by women throughout the centuries on these various aspects. And it's a really a well-written book. I love the book. And I have my students read it often. And so this guy wrote a report after he read the book. And he began his paper like this. I always thought that the Bible taught that women are intellectually inferior to men and that they should not be in positions of authority. And I thought, wow, right? 
Then he went on to say, this book has changed my life. And it uh, actually, I think it was a providential thing that he read the book because he received a letter before he went back to Singapore. And the letter said, well, actually, we have put you in a position as assistant minister and the head minister will be a woman in his church. And he said, I couldn't have done that job. Like, how could you be an assistant minister to someone you think is your intellectual inferior and that shouldn't be in a position of leadership? So that was an incredible experience for me that finding out that there's a long history of women interpreters and that there are different readings of Genesis 1 to 3 that do not condemn all women and do not, I mean, it doesn't ever say in scripture, women are intellectually inferior. I don't know where he got that teaching in church, but that's what he got. So, so that was a beautiful experience for me, right? That he, he read scripture in a different way. And he realizes that in Christ, men and women are equal and and Amen. that ministry mm-hmm. options are open right now. And um, so it does make a difference. And I, I was talking at a conference um, and the chair was a young black woman. And I shared the stories of 19th century black preachers, right, who felt like a woman named Jarena Lee. She said, I have a fire burning in me, right? I have to preach. So she went to the minister and said, I feel called. And he said, no, you, you know, women shouldn't do this. So for the next 10 years, she was at home and doing her thing, but didn't feel right because she felt this call to preach and teach. And so 10 years later, she's at church. The bishop is there. He's now, the minister is now a bishop and the minister preaching lost his place somehow. So she stood up and preached. And, I, and she knew it's like, this is really a risky thing. But sometimes in black churches, that happens. And so at the end of it, the bishop said, you are right. You should be called. You know, like you can. And, and they ordained her and she became this wonderful evangelist. And I told that story. And this woman said to me afterwards, thank you. Right. I didn't know that there were women who looked like me who did this kind of thing. Wow. So I know. Like we we often say, if you can see it, you can be it, right? So we need to recover not just the stories of Eurocentric white women, right? We need <laughs> Asian women, we need Black women, we need Hispanic women, we need women from every culture that have been in leadership positions that can model for women and men today that actually women can be competent, can do this, and God blesses their ministry. One of the quotations that is in Amanda's book was picked up by several of my students, even this term, when they reviewed the book. And she cites Catherine Booth, who's known as one of the founder of Salvation Army. And in one of Booth's writings, she says, what if we have been wrong about how we've treated women? What is the impact in terms of sharing the gospel to the world if women have been silenced? So we've been silencing more than half of God's people to say, no, no, you can't, you must be silent. You can't do this. You can't do that. What if we have been wrong? 
right? How are we going to be judged by that? And a student in my class, he's a Jesuit, he said, what if the Catholic Church has been wrong about not letting women be priests? There is a huge shortage of men in the priesthood. And there are all these women that are ready to do it, right? What have we have been wrong? So he is one Catholic that actually thinks that women should be ordained in the Catholic Church. So it is making a difference, right? And so people like Booth, but she asked this question in the 19th century, right? We're still not there. We're, the, the, the pathway for women to do ministry is not as easy as it is for men even today. But it's better than it has been in some circles, but not all circles. I want to bring us back a little bit. You were talking about how when you typed in Mrs. in the box, that's when you surfaced a whole bunch of women interpreters. Right. Have there been other interesting challenges that have arisen as you're looking for women interpreters? Oh, sure. Some women are hidden now, and we only find out about them in the letters of men. And this would be in the early church. The further we go back in history, the more difficult it is to find women's writings. So Jerome's letters are a treasure trove because he mentions the women in his life who are helping him translate and are involved in ministry. And he references them as very well studied. They know Hebrew, they know Greek, they studied scripture. You know, they have a lot of money and help him in ministry. So we only know about those women through Jerome's writings. We don't have their writings, which is sad. It would be wonderful to find out more about them, but we that, mm. that's lost to us. Other people's writings, including Susanna Wesley, who's usually touted as the mother of Methodism or the mother of John and Charles Wesley, she was also a very competent woman in terms of her knowledge of scripture, her ability to preach and teach. She had 18 children. That's a lot of children. And she taught all of them. And she wrote these incredible pastoral letters to her children. And a number of them are extant. But the Wesley family's house burnt down several times. So many of her writings are lost. But we do have one collected volume of her writings. So that's exciting. There were a few heretical women. I mean, just because it's a woman doesn't mean it's good writing, right? So we have women who were deemed heretics. They were, you know, prophesying things that were kind of weird and wonderful. And their writings were burnt, right? So a number of writings of women, even in the medieval period, were put on the forbidden list. Sometimes people slipped copies into archives. (laughs) So... So that's why there is this project right going on right now. A woman named Carmi Font, who is a Spanish academic who teaches English, she got a 1.3 million euro grant to find the lost writings of women from the 16th to 18th century. So they've got a team of five people working in different language groups going across Europe trying to find women's writings, archives, diaries, personal collections. And then translating them into other languages so they'll be available for other people to study. And I, so they're lost to us. And uh, currently, I have a graduate student who's a Methodist, very interested in the writings of early Methodist women. And there is a very exciting 
archives in Manchester, the Methodist archives, they have 43 boxes of women's writings, and very few people have ever looked at them. And they include sermons by women. So there's a woman named Mary Fletcher, and there is a published sermon by her on Exodus 20 from the 1790s. And it's a good sermon. She preached for like 25 years. She was an Anglican and she would go to the Anglican church. And then she would have her Methodist meetings after the church bells stopped ringing. So she was involved <laughs> in ministry at every turn, you know, and, and how exciting. She's got all these boxes of scripture notes, sermon outlines. So we need to transcribe them, get them in English, you know, figure out what was going on with this woman and get this stuff published. That's probably the largest stash of women's writings. It astounds me that a woman who says, I'm an Anglican, is preaching sermons in 1794 and 95 in the early 1800s. She's not alone. The early Methodists had lots of women who were involved in ministry, but we don't know that history, right? And I, I've been working on the 16th century, the time of the Reformation. And when I studied Reformation history, we studied the men. We didn't know any of the record. I, I never learned about, you know, the various women who were actually involved in teaching and preaching in the early years of the Reformation. In the first 20 years of the Reformation, this they were so excited about the freedom they had in Christ. And these women were preaching and teaching. And a lot of them had come out of convents. So they were theologically educated, right? Then they get married to former priests. Now, a number of them had children and they were very like Katie Luther had five kids or something that, that she was busy and ran a big household. But there is one of my favorite women that I've been working on is Katerina Schutzel. She had two children, but they died, sadly. And she was married to Matthew Zell, who's a reformer. He had an incredibly forward-looking view of marriage. And he considered his wife a co-worker, a church mother. He called her a deacon, you know, my partner. And they were partners in ministry. And we have her letters. We have her letters of pastoral care. And she's a leading pastoral theologian in her own right and a very exciting biblical interpreter. She wrote letters of pastoral care to a guy who nobody else would visit. And she exegeted the Psalms of lament and tried to reach out to him saying, scripture is really relevant to you in your misery. They're wonderful. I, um, my husband has written a paper on her analyzing her Christological readings of the Psalms. She knew Luther, right? But she, she's appropriating the learning of the day. She has access to all of this stuff. And then uh, she's writing very sophisticated letters. She also preaches when her husband died. And this is astounding to me. Martin Booser, a leading reformer preached at the at her husband's funeral and then she preached for 45 minutes after that after her <laughs> husband had just died right and then as the you know reform i mean this is the sad, one of the sad parts of the history of the reformation as the church began to divide 
over issues of how we do Eucharist, how we view certain theological positions. She was not, she didn't want to divide from the Anabaptists, right? In her world, they were Christians too, right? And, and we are united in our faith in Christ. We don't divide over these other issues. Some of the men, though, however, would not do services for dissenting people. But she did. So she conducted the funerals of women who the men would not bury because she said over issues of doctrine, I'm not going to divide. So she presents not only a wonderful woman who is a really good exegete, but a woman who does pastoral care and has a vision, sort of an ecumenical vision that we are Christians, we're in it together, we need to unite. And maybe women are better at that in this period than the men who are so hung <laughs> up on the details of theology and miss out on, boy, we're supposed to love one another, right? Mm. Um, so I'm not saying all women weren't involved in dividing. I'm not saying that. But there are a number of them who have a bigger vision of community, right, and loving one another across theological divides that that. Are, it's pretty impressive to me. So I, she's one of my favorites these days. <laughs> I was just going to comment that like, I feel like that is still such a struggle even today. Absolutely. With the, the theological divide. And, yeah. and I think to hear, you know, like some of the early voices into not just the ecumenical posture, but the, the, the depth of the unity within the body of Christ and these voices that were, you know, that we have not heard of which is so needed. I think it's especially in a time like this where like our, our, our world is so polarizing. So anyways, mm-hmm. yeah, thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. That's going to be it for our episode today. Thank you guys so much for joining us on this conversation. There's going to be a part two of this, which is going to be coming up in a couple of weeks, and we hope you'll join us for that. What did you think of what Marion was sharing today? What's been your experience of ministry, especially surrounding this episode's discussion? Did you know of all these women who are part of interpreting the Bible throughout history? We'd love to hear what you think. You could always reach us by Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or by email. Our email address is contact.campodcast at gmail.com. That's contact.campodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you think and what your reflections are. If you haven't done so already, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen on. That continues to help us get this conversation out there. And please also share in person as well. Once again, you've been listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and we hope you'll join us on this journey. See you next time.